just real quick before we jump into this. One of the songs that we sang today, you saw the line, you chosen seed of Israel's race. I want to address that just because we're going to, what we're going to talk about today from scripture is going to be in the same ballpark as far as uh, content goes. We sing a line like that, we think, is that like some sort of a God endorsed racism or something like that? And the answer is obviously no. Um, remember, realize this, that God always commanded Israel to welcome in the stranger and those from outside. The condition was this. It wasn't what their blood or ethnicity was as much as it was their faith. So, example, the people of Israel criticized Moses because his wife was of a different ethnicity. We never see God doing that. Uh, another example, Ruth. Ruth the Moabitess. What did she say? Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And was she to be welcomed into Israel? She absolutely was. We are the children of Abraham if we are, by, if we are that by faith. By faith. So we can sing that song and know that it's also true of, of the church. Uh, because we are by faith. Okay, that covenant has been for all time. For all time. Okay? Uh, now, last week, we're in Genesis 14, this week. And where we left off last week, Abram was certainly looking like a dude. Four big kings swept in through the region, taking down 11 kings and kingdoms, including the kingdom of Sodom, where Lot and his family were now permanent residents. But then Abram jumped into action, taking 318 of his men and a few other allies that we'll see later, marching 120 miles, and then by sneak attack at night, defeating the armies of the four conquering kings, led by mighty King Kedorlaomer. Sounds evil, doesn't it? Abram now, after this victory, is leading all the people, his own and those who had been captured, all of the possessions, the spoils of battle that they had acquired, back down into the promised land where they belonged. Uh, this was a parade of triumph. Certainly a triumph of faith and a triumph of blessing from the Lord. So we're going to go pick up where we left off last week, starting in Genesis 14, verse 17. Verse 17, it says this. After his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh. That is the king's valley. This is just a little bit south of Jerusalem. And it says Melchizedek, which his name means either king of righteousness or my king is righteous. And he was the king of Salem. This is Jerusalem. And Salem means peace. Melchizedek brought out bread and wine. So there's a gift, a little hospitality for these men after they just fought a battle, so much needed gift. It says that he was priest of God Most High. So we have these ancient uh, city kings, Melchizedek and this king of Sodom. So there's going to be some comparison contrast today with these, with these guys. Now, Melchizedek. From what we have so far, this is what we know of him. He would have been a Canaanite. Remember, Jerusalem isn't Jerusalem yet. And there's no such thing as a Jewish person yet. No Isaac, 
no Jacob, no sons of Israel. So Melchizedek was probably a Canaanite, a descendant of Ham. We know that Melchizedek was a king, king in the city of Salem, which would later become Jerusalem. And we know from this passage so far that Melchizedek was a priest. It says here, a priest of God Most High. That's how he referred to him. Uh, Like Job, there were other people besides Abram who knew about or believed in God before the establishment of the Jewish people, before the establishment of the nation of Israel, and before the law. Melchizedek is one of those people. Uh, Though notice that he, he may not know the name of the Lord, Yahweh, as Abram knows him, referring to him instead, much like Nebuchadnezzar would later, as God Most High, or the Most High God. So more on Melchizedek later, okay? Much more. Verse 19. And he, Melchizedek, blessed him, blessed Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High. Possessor, or the word here could have been translated creator. If you're the creator, you're the possessor. Possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High. Meaning, praise be to God. He is worthy of praise, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Remember the covenant with Abram. God said, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Melchizedek, through his gift and hospitality, and speaking this blessing, is himself entering into this blessing. A couple things to think about. Uh, with this time of blessing, okay? Three questions that we're going to ask. Number one, what is a verbal blessing? What even is that to give a blessing? Well, the word in Hebrew for blessing can mean to praise, to congratulate, or to salute, or it can even be used in a negative context to be a curse. It could be a curse. Uh, when we say, great job, when somebody does well, or we say, uh, have a wonderful day, in the morning. We are blessing people, technically. Um, but when God blesses, things happen. God's blessings are more like decrees, even commands. He blessed the animals to be fruitful and multiply in Genesis 1, and guess what? They did. They did. And God also blessed Adam and Eve to have dominion over the earth, which served, that blessing served as a God-enabled command for them. So Melchizedek's blessing here serves as an acknowledgement of God's blessing. He isn't saying, way to go, Abraham, you're so cool. That's not what it is at all. What he is saying is, God is blessing you, Abram. God is blessing you, Abram. There is no doubt about it. Praise God for what he's doing through you. That's what Melchizedek is saying. Question number two, how does viewing God as the possessor of heaven and earth correct our perspective? How does viewing him as possessor of heaven and earth correct our perspective? We know this, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father, from James 1.17. So we have to ask this, whose are we? Not so much who are we as much as whose are we? We are his possession, Uh, That's why it is sin to violate his commands. If God's just another life form in the universe that we all share, 
then he can't tell us how to live or how to function. Uh, But he isn't just another life. He's our creator and our possessor. My life is his because he is my maker. And in Christ, my life is his because he's my redeemer. We've been bought with a price. So it's only right for us to give ourselves over as a living sacrifice, as it says in Romans 12.1. Isn't it the kindness of God to have some kind of language like give ourselves over as a living sacrifice? When really he could just... He's God. And he wants our willful worship and obedience. Question number three, who delivered the enemies? Melchizedek addresses this. Who delivers the enemies and into whose hands? God was keeping up his commitment to Abram. God delivered the enemies into Abram's hand. Uh, Melchizedek acknowledged in this blessing the sovereignty of God and his apparent blessing and favor toward Abram. So Melchizedek's praising of God most high after this military victory was totally appropriate. And here's Abram's response at the end of verse 20. After receiving this blessing from Melchizedek, uh, having an idea of who this guy is and what he's up to, Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Okay, first, Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth, or a tithe, of his war spoils. Uh, when it says of everything, uh, that's what it's referring to. Hebrews 7.4, which we'll look at later, tells us that it was a tenth of the spoils from these, from these battles. Okay? When the battle was won, the winner took what was left over. Where'd these spoils come from, you'd ask? Uh, the food, the animals, the weapons, whatever was left over on the battlefield or in the camp, the losers didn't need it anymore, right? And so there was a gain of possessions after the victory in battle by the victor. This is what Abram gave a tenth of to Melchizedek. Second, why a tenth? Why not a fifth? You ever think about that? Why not 20%? Why 10%? The answer, if you can believe it, you ready? I don't know. (laughs) Okay, Can can we be okay with that? There's really nothing in Genesis, nothing in the Bible, or even other recorded history that proves any set precedent for this amount, for this percentage. It it feels awesome to know, right? But it's not awesome to know when there's nothing to know. (laughs) You, You understand what I'm saying there? Here's what we do know. This amount, this 10%, later serves as a sort of precedent for Jacob. In the end of Genesis 28, he says that he was going to give a tithe of all that he got. Okay? And for the tithes required and written of in the law, in the Old Testament law. This amount was given voluntarily by Abraham and Jacob and by requirement for the Israelites under the law. So this giving was purely an act of worship by Abram and by Jacob later on. They were acknowledging that God had given them everything they had and as an act of worship gave a tenth back. Does that make sense? It was also an act of obedience by the nation of Israel. It was an act of worship and obedience in Israel because God had made it into law. So, I know what you're asking. What about today? What about us? Now, we aren't Old Testament Israel, right? 
Uh, We're no longer under the law because we died with Christ and we've been justified freely by the grace of God, right? Hooray for the book of Galatians. So you don't have to obey the Old Testament law of Israel. We're not under that law. Uh, You do not have to take a tenth or a second tenth or a third tenth every third year. Technically, all the tithes mentioned in the law that Israel gave annually came to about 25% of their income. So if we're going to go back to the law, it's actually more than 10% of the total. Does that make sense? You don't have to take a tenth of all of your produce or the money from the sales of your produce and take it to Jerusalem. So, okay, we got through that. Uh, Now, the New Testament does talk about giving. And when it does, it refers to giving towards the needs of others, such as in 1 Corinthians 16. It refers to giving in order to provide for those in Christian service, 1 Timothy 5. And it gives evidence of Christians giving a portion of their earnings as he may prosper, all the way to giving all of their earnings and even all of their possessions, which was in the unusual situation in Jerusalem during their time of persecution in the first days of the church. That wasn't normative. That was an unusual situation. And nowhere else in the New Testament were the churches commanded to do likewise. Uh, So, quickly, here are some of the characteristics that we see attributed to giving in the New Testament. Things like this. As we may prosper on the first day of the week. A willing gift, not an exaction. Uh, Give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. And then as a cheerful giver, cheerfully. Uh, by the way, from what I can tell, um, I've seen a great deal of cheerful giving here at this church. And for that, I say, way to go. That was a blessing, right? Remember that? Way to go. Praise God. That's wonderful. And I can't speak for every one of you, and that's because I don't check, okay, so that you know. I know how much the offering is on Sunday, but I don't check to see what everybody's giving. There's no tithing police, okay, here at First Baptist Church. That's not cheerfully and willing, is it, when there's tithe police? So we don't do that. We don't do that. That's between you and the Lord. Uh, We don't give under compulsion. We give willingly as an act of worship. So what happened to tithing? Does all this mean that we don't believe in tithing anymore? Well, not necessarily. Uh, I think it can still be argued that tithing is a good thing, but we shouldn't call it law. Because that law is the law of the Old Testament. Is it good? Yes. Can it be encouraged? Sure. Is it a law that you have to give under compulsion? I don't think the New Testament warrants that. Okay, uh, remember, Abraham and Jacob gave tithes willingly. So they did give tithes, they gave them willingly, purely as an act of worship under no compulsion prior to the law. And Abraham gave to, through, the high priest Melchizedek. Now let's think about it. If there were to be someone who stood as king and as high priest after the order of Melchizedek, hmm, Someone who would tie all of this together and bring us to God. Someone we could willingly, cheerfully bring tithes and offerings to in worship. If only. More on that later. But before we talk more about Melchizedek and his priesthood, let's 
finish this passage in Genesis 14, verse 21. And the king of Sodom, so we had the king of Salem, Melchizedek, now we have the king of Sodom. He said to Abram, okay, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Now that might sound like a, an offering of a gift to Abram from the king of Sodom, but it wasn't. Remember, Sodom had been conquered, captured. The king could have been a prisoner of war, and his kingdom was taken. Abram was the leader of the army that had conquered the king of Sodom's conquerors. He conquered the conquerors. So a quick change of hands. So who did all of Sodom's land, people, and possessions technically belong to? Abram. And here, the king of Sodom has to start his statement with, Give me, rightly so, because Abram was the rightful possessor. But he says it as an imperative command. And then spins the second half of the offer with, Take as if it was his, the goods. The king of Salem brought out food and drink, offered hospitality, worship to the Lord, and blessing for Abraham. And it's never recorded that Melchizedek asked Abram for anything. Why did Abram give a tenth? Because he willingly desired to cheerfully give as an act of worship. Melchizedek never demanded that from him. While the king of Sodom attempts to swing a deal with possessions that aren't even his to barter with. He's not showing any kindness to Abram. He's assuming ownership, a sense of entitlement, in an effort to walk away with as much as he can get. And Abram's not even interested in dealing with him. Verse 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anair, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. A couple of really neat things to notice in this paragraph. First, notice that Abram takes the name of the Lord. He says, I've lifted my hand to the Lord. So the name of Yahweh, and then links it with the terminology that Melchizedek had used to refer to God, God Most High. So if Melchizedek didn't know the name of the Lord as it had been revealed to Abram before this day, he does now. He, he does now. Secondly, remember uh, those other political leaders that Abram had signed those peace treaties with from last week? Remember those guys? Those are those three guys at the end of this passage. Anner, Eskel, and Mamre heard there was a fight, that Abram was headed to battle, and they joined in with him. Remember, those who bless Abram will be blessed. And they were. They were. As each one of them got their share of the spoils, along with the win on Team Abram, which was really now starting to look like a great team to be on. And then finally, Abram offers a starkly different response to the king of Sodom than he had to Melchizedek. Abram rightly understood Melchizedek to be a priest of the Lord and offered his tithe his gift of worship to God through him. And this certainly would have been an act of friendship, of camaraderie between the two men. However, to the king of Sodom, Abram declares that he has made a vow to God that, that he'll have nothing to do with him. And quite frankly tells the king of Sodom that if Abram did have anything to do with him, if there were to be any profits gained from these victories, he is well aware that the king of Sodom would take credit for it. So the exact opposite of the king of Salem, Melchizedek, who blessed the Lord. 
The king of Salem blesses the Lord. He blesses and gives hospitality to Abram. King of Sodom wants what's his, even when it's not his to have. Now, back to Melchizedek. Who is this guy? (laughs) A lot of people have wondered. Some have said it's Shem, the son of Noah. And although Shem was still alive during the life of Abram, that doesn't mean that he is Melchizedek. There are more people in the world than that. Uh, There's really nothing there to prove that. Uh, Some say that Melchizedek was the pre-incarnate Christ, as if to say that God the Son came and participated in this event in order to restate the blessing and remind Abram who was giving him these victories and blessings. Now, since Melchizedek's name means either my king is righteous or king of righteousness, and and since he's the king of Salem, which means peace, people say maybe he's Jesus? Let's look at Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. And I'm going to start reading it now, but we're going to come back. So if you don't beat me to it, don't worry. We'll, We'll come back and look at it again, okay? Hebrews 7, 1 through 3. This might seem to support the idea that this is Jesus, but then it eliminates the possibility in verse 3. It says this, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation, by his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Well, that sounds like it's going down that track, doesn't it? says he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. That sounds like eternity. So is that Jesus? But then it says, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. The Greek word there for resembling requires that there be two parties. So that word nullifies the idea that Melchizedek is Jesus. He's a lot like Jesus. He's what they call a type. So you look at Melchizedek, and when you do, and you see all the things about him, you learn of the Christ who was to come. The reality is Melchizedek would have had a dad, would have had a mom, would have had a birth, would have had a death, but we don't see anything of it. Does that make sense? All that's there is what's recorded for us in Genesis. And we can attribute those things to Christ. Okay? So so then who is Melchizedek? He was simply a godly God-fearing Canaanite king and priest who ruled and served God in the city of Salem or Jerusalem before the nation of Israel ever existed. That's who he is. As interesting as this man's story would seem, though, he's not mentioned again in the Old Testament until King David in Jerusalem, ruling from Jerusalem, under the inspiration of the Spirit, wrote Psalm 110. Psalm 110 verses 1 through 4 say this, and you've probably heard this reference in the New Testament several times. The Lord, and that's the name of God, Yahweh, says to my Lord, so like David's king, who could be the king of the king? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, so this person will be a king. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. That's an awesome statement. And then he says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
this psalm can only be about one person. This person would sit at the right hand of the Father, rule and reign, and serve as a high priest forever from Zion. This can only be Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is promised to serve as priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Not after the order of the law, not the Levitical priesthood. Christ fulfilled the law. The curtain at the Holy of Holies was torn in two from top to bottom. That separation is gone. When he died, we died with him and are therefore dead to the law and no longer under its condemnation. Praise God. Jesus is priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, let's keep looking at Hebrews chapter 7. And listen, I can't really do any better job than to just show this to you in the text. So we're going to go back to verse 1, and I'm going to start reading. And I'll throw in some commentary along the way, hopefully not too much. Okay, and Jesus is worthy of our attention, okay? So I'm going to take a risk here and read a lot of scripture in a sermon. And remember, the book of Hebrews was written to Hebrews. Some of them were surely believers, and it's also quite probable that some of the readers were not All of them, though, were struggling with the whole idea of leaving behind the law and all that came with it. They've been living that way all their life, and their people for all of those years. The law was such a part of who they were as a people, as a culture, as families. Much of their perceived identity was wrapped up in the law. And they needed to be taught, they needed to be reassured that Jesus and the covenant of grace was better. That Jesus is better. So are you you ready? All right, let's do this. Hebrews 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. That sounds familiar. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Remember, Jesus is the righteous king of kings. And then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Jesus, the prince of peace, will rule and reign. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Jesus, the type. Melchizedek is the type of Jesus. Jesus, God the Son, eternal in his existence. But resembling the Son of God, resembling Jesus Christ, he continues a priest forever. Now we keep going. Verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them, so he's not of the tribe of Levi, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. That just means that man receives the blessings, but God gives them. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, in the other case, by one of whom it is uh, testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, uh, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. And that just means that when Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek, all Israel in Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. Verse 11, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical, Levitical priesthood, for under it... Uh, the people receive the law, and of course perfection is not obtainable or attainable through the law, only condemnation. But if perfection were attainable, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, 
rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily, it has to happen, a change in the law as well. So if we still have to follow the law, uh, then we still need the Aaronic Levitical priesthood. That's what he's saying. For uh, the one whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. Melchizedek was not a Levite. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, the other tribe of Israel there, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, meaning by the Old Testament law, but by the power of an indestructible life. An indestructible life. The eternal, all-powerful God specifically appointed him to be a priest. For it is witnessed of him... You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's from Psalm 110. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And now that would have been a really hard statement. That's a serious statement for the Hebrew readers. As far as righteousness goes, as far as redemption and saving goes, the law was weak and useless. To the Pharisees, those were fighting words, weren't they? But on the other hand... A better hope is introduced. And, and realize that went all the way back to Abraham and Melchizedek. A better hope. Though through which, sorry, through which we draw near to God. Christ is better. The covenant of grace is better. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. Meaning that they were made priests by their bloodline. They were Levites. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, this is God, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Again, from Psalm 110. You're almost done. How are you holding up? You doing okay? Verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor. There's a fun word that we don't say a lot. The guarantor of a better covenant. How? How did Jesus become the guarantor of the better covenant? Through his shed blood, as our sacrifice on the cross. Jesus Christ, our sacrificial lamb, taking his own blood, and then as high priest, sprinkling it at the altar for our sin. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, meaning that there were a whole bunch of them because they didn't live forever. <laughs> but he holds his priesthood permanently. Will there ever need to be another high priest? No, because Jesus is never going to die. He continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them to the uttermost. Is there a sinner on the face of this earth who is unsavable? Can a person put their faith in Christ and be saved and then sin a whole lot and Jesus' ministry as high priest ends and therefore he no longer satisfies the wrath of God for their sin? Never. Never. This is a better covenant. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. 
he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of those people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Congrats, you made it. So who is Melchizedek? He's a forerunner. He's a type of the one to come. The son to come. Who has no beginning no end, who has no sin, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, who became for us our spotless, sacrificial lamb, who became for us our high priest, making intercession for us before God the Father on the basis of his own righteousness through his shed blood, and who is King of kings and Lord of lords who will rule and reign forever. Jesus Christ, the Lamb, the High Priest, the King of Kings. Melchizedek points us to Jesus. So when you find yourself in battle in this life, remember, in this world you will have tribulation. But fear not, because Jesus has overcome the world. The battle is over. The victory is won. Our enemy has been fully and finally defeated. All the stuff that he's doing now is just flailing his arms. It's over. And we are God's people, Christ's possession. When you bring your tithes and offerings to the house of the Lord, do it with a cheerful heart, not under compulsion or exaction or extraction or as a result of the law, but willingly as an act of voluntary worship. We, the church, are giving our offerings as worship to King Jesus, our High Priest, our Lord, our Savior. Uh, With all of the scripture that we have on giving, in an effort to view the Old Testament law and the New Testament correctly, and in keeping with what we know about our progressive sanctification, I think I think it's good to encourage giving in this way. If you're not giving anything right now, be encouraged to move from giving nothing to giving something. If you're giving something, be encouraged, be encouraged to willingly progress to tithing. If you are tithing, and if you're able and have decided in your heart, as it says in 2 Corinthians 9, give bountifully, above and beyond a tithe. In our growth as followers of Christ, in our sanctification, our giving ought to move from giving nothing to something, something to tithing. And if we're able to and happy to do so, from tithing to giving bountifully. That's the biblical model. And then finally, maybe you're here today and you haven't been trying to follow the Old Testament law per se. You you knew that was gone, right? You've been eating bacon your whole life and no worries or anything like that about it. Uh, But you've realized in the course of this message that you have been trying to follow your own law. 
your own law. Uh, one that maybe you've, you've based off of what you've uh, thought the Bible said or things that you've been told or believed yourself. And you've gotten the idea that the way that you please God enough to be one of his is to follow perfectly that version of the law. Does that make sense? You're not necessarily trying to measure up to the Pentateuch, but there is a version of the Pentateuch that you've written or that somebody maybe has written for you, and you are trying to measure up to that. Okay? That's a possibility, isn't it? If that's happening, we need to be honest with ourselves. You can't do that. You'll only stand condemned. And if you can follow your own version of the law, there's a big problem still. Even if you've accomplished it. We don't get to write our own law unless we're the supreme authority. Nobody here is God, correct? Okay, check. Of course we know that. To write our own law, think about this now, to write our own law and to expect ourselves and others to follow it is treason. Who is the writer of the law? Who says what's right and wrong? And if I decide that I'm going to go against what the word of God says, then I have said to him, you are not my authority. I'm going my own way. That's sin. That's sin. There's only one way to be justified before our holy God. One way. One way. Put your trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Call on him now as your Lord and Savior. He is our king. He is our high priest. He is our sacrificial lamb. And he died once and for all. Let's make him our Lord. And Christians, let's follow him hard. Follow hard after him in our lives. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this better covenant. We thank you for this better sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your grace that you give to us to provide this means of our salvation. Your grace to open our eyes and make us even want to know about it and to even accept it. Lord, if there would be a person here who's never repented and put their faith and trust in Christ, called on him as Lord and Savior, I pray that you would do that work in their heart even now. And Lord, for us here who have understood the gospel and put our faith in Christ, and maybe along the way we've kind of written some new laws and put before our own feet stumbling blocks, that make us think that we're condemned before you or make us treat other people like they're condemned before you. God, grant us repentance in that. Lord, thank you for your grace. And and should we sin that, that, that grace may abound, God forbid. God, may we love you with our whole hearts. In our gratitude to you, and because we died with Christ when he died and we now live in him and through his resurrection... God, we're yours. And it's only right that we would live for you, giving our lives as a sacrifice a sacrifice of worship and praise. 
God, we are your people. May we regard you as holy, as worthy, and offer to you our worship. Growing in it and giving bountifully in it. And not just in finances, but in everything. Because you're worthy. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.